Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. You can uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> we do have some, some Bibles available in some of the seats that are somewhere around you. So if you need one, go ahead and grab one of those so that you can be following along. We're going to look today at such a sweet yet in some ways troubling story in Mark chapter 10 of a man who comes to Jesus seeking answers for something that is lacking in his heart. But before we do that, we are going to look at Jesus' interaction with some kids first. So let's uh, pray. Father, open up our eyes as Josh prayed that we would be attentive. Lord, open up our hearts, Lord, uh, that we might be attentive to respond. And bless your word. And we thank you for the gift of it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, we left off in verse 13. So last time when we were together, we were looking at this teaching that Jesus did about divorce. Uh, as some Pharisees came with him. Remember, Jesus is making his way from the Galilee region down to Jerusalem, and he's entering into the area of Judea there, an area that he wasn't really around a lot. Jesus didn't go down there very often, uh, except for the, uh, the various feasts and things like that. Most of his ministry was up there in the Galilee region, but Jesus has now left the Galilee region to go down to the Judean region so that he might give his life on a cross. And as he's going, he encounters, as we saw last week, these Pharisees, and they uh, are annoying. Um, I mean, in this instance in particular, they're annoying. They come, and they're just pressing. They don't really want to know. They're just testing him. And he's like, look, if you don't like me, don't like me. Just leave me alone, uh, is how we might be thinking here. And they're, they're posing his que their questions to them. They're going to get him, but they, never, they don't get him. Um, but now there's a new group that comes to him. And everything changes, I think, in this instance. Jesus loves these guys that come to him. And if there was any frustration on the part of the Lord, it's all gone because kids come to him. And Jesus is delighted by that. So uh, it's such an, the antithesis of what we might expect. We might expect big, important Jesus, big, important work to do. He's got to go to Jerusalem and do what he's going to do there and stuff. He doesn't have time for little kids. And yet Jesus, when they try to stop him, he's like, yo, no. This is the best part of my day. You're not taking this away from me. Let the kids come to me. And, and I'll read the story. I'm getting excited. I'm ahead of the game here. Starting in verse 13, he says, When they were bringing children to him uh, that he might touch them, the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw that he was indignant toward the disciples, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus took them in his arms, and he began to bless them, laying his hands on them, it says there. And so, for the disciples, the kids are a bother to the Lord. But to Jesus, they're a great blessing to the Lord. The disciples anticipated that the, the children were going to anger the Lord by their interruption. What's interesting to take note, the thing that does anger the Lord, is that they try to keep the kids from coming to him. We see that there in verse 44. It says, when Jesus saw it, he became indignant. Indignant means he was angry. He was frustrated. Don't stop them. I want them to come to me. And as I said a moment ago, this was the best part of Jesus' day. And they're trying to keep that from him. It says that he was indignant. Now, I have to imagine that the disciples meant well. I'm sure that they were looking at the Lord, they were hearing the Lord's, what the Lord had been saying. They had seen on his face that something had changed. We remember the prophecy said that Jesus set his face like flint, like a stone, to go to Jerusalem. And it seems that Jesus now, something has sort of changed in this demeanor of things. Uh, even the way that the wording is, as it talks about they followed after the Lord, it seems to imply that the Lord is off a little bit ahead of them, and they're sort of trailing behind them. Something's different about this trip now down to Jerusalem, and it seems that the disciples are picking up on that. And so, of course, he's not going to have time for all these little kids that are going to come and try to uh, get their blessing and things like that, because there's this new sobriety to the Lord that has entered in in these last few days. And so I imagine the disciples meant well. 
that they were trying to guard the Lord from these unnecessary interruptions. And yet, once again, we see in our study here of Mark is it's possible to mean well, but to actually do something that is harmful. Many times a lot of parents do that with their children. It's possible to mean well, I'm going to give my kid everything they possibly could want and even stuff they don't want, and actually in that process be harming your kid. And so it's possible that they're meaning well here, and yet they're still in the wrong. Because here are a group of parents that want to bring their children to the Lord to have the Lord bless them. And the the term there for blessing, it means to um, sort of pronounce a blessing over them. The word for bringing, it's a word which is used in the Bible uh, that you would bring your offering And so it's almost like this act of worship, though I don't think that's what the parents are thinking, but it's this formal act of bringing their children to the Lord that he might put their hands on them, that he might pray for them. Another thing I find interesting is the word they that is found in verse 13, and they were bringing their children, it's in the masculine form, which means that the men were bringing their children to Jesus. We don't have that in our language, but I remember when I was a kid studying Spanish, and in Spanish, they have ellos and ellas, and ellas is the women. Am I somewhat close, my Spanish-speaking friends? Uh, I got that. I got that down in my study of the language there. And so it's the, for, it's the plural form of the masculine that is being used here, which means that it's the men that are bringing their kids to Jesus. I think this is so very important because so often what we hear in our culture is, well, I leave the religion to, the, to their mom. And, you know, the dad, I I just, I cut the lawn, or whatever it may be. And yet here are dads standing up, taking the lead spiritually with their children. Fathers, you are called to be the spiritual heads of your homes. Lead your home, and lead it well. These men were doing that. They were bringing these kids to the Lord. The disciples stopped them, and Jesus, with a touch of rebuke, he says, no, let the little children come to me. He says there, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, children are very different from adults in in a lot of ways, obviously, and not just size. But children are marked by humility. They ought, not all kids, uh, but most kids. They know that they're smaller, and thus they find themselves often marked by humility. Children are often marked by trust until we destroy that trust. Children have short memories and are incredibly quick to forgive. And those are all the same types of things that Jesus has been communicating to his adult disciples, and his adult disciples, whether they were his closest ones or the larger crowd, were having difficulty embracing those things. Kids, it seems, were naturally embracing those things. You think of a kid, and I remember when my kids were little, and even now that they're older, when I would wrong my kids and I'd have to go to my kids to apologize to my kids, Oftentimes, the kids are like, yeah, it's okay. Do you want to play? You know what I mean? It was like, it was just like that. And I was like, no, no. Like, I'm really sorry. You need, fine, whatever. Let's play drugs. You know, whatever it may be. You go to an adult, and you say, look, man, I really wronged you. And what is the adult thinking? You've been there. Father, how many times do I need to forgive this guy? Is seven enough times? And Jesus says, not seven, 70 times seven. You know, we're weighing these things out, but kids are so quick to forgive. Whereas adults are qualifying and they're looking for loopholes. Or in the case of the Pharisees that we were looking at earlier, they were trying to test the Lord and even to trap the Lord. But what are kids? Kids are ready to receive. Kids want to learn. Kids want to be with the Lord. And Jesus loved that about them. And he loved it so much that he points to the heart of a child. And we see that in verse 15. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He sees in them their hard attitude, and he exhorts then the adults around them that that's how they should be responding to him and to the Father's leading as well. He explains that the kingdom of God, it belongs to little children. It belongs to those that have childlike faith and that are marked by humility. Now, make sure you catch this. Jesus isn't saying that we need to be childish. And there are some Christians that think that's what he's saying, that he wants us to be childish and goofy. And I was like, yeah, I don't even want to hang out with these people. I'm a Christian, and I don't want to hang out with them because they're goofy. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying here you have to be goofy to get into the kingdom of God. He's saying you have to be childlike. 
And by that, what he means is humble, trusting, ready to receive from him. That heart uh, needs to be our heart. Or we'll never come to the place of receiving what God has for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and come to the place of receiving that by faith. We have to be a trusting people like kids are. And so now, despite the disciples trying to keep the kids away from the Lord, Jesus says, Don't, no one's taking anybody away from me, scoops up each of these kids, and he begins to hold them. He told, what's your name, kid? Or, I'm sure he didn't say kid. That sounds rude. He says, you know, what's your name? You know, yeah, oh, wow, look at your little toy you got there. That's fabulous. And he talks to the kids, puts a little blessing on them. He says, all right, now you go on out. I, I can't help but picture this long line of parents with their kids waiting for Santa. You know, it's like that same sort of idea. These kids are just waiting to get to the Lord, and the Lord uh, takes them, verse 16 says, in his arms, and he blesses them, and he lays a hand, his hands upon them. And I don't know how many kids there were, 10 kids, 100 kids, or whatever. Remember, Jesus didn't go down to this village very often, and this way very often, and so now's your chance. And so the kids are waiting, and I, I imagine, I, I suspect every last kid had an opportunity to be brought to the Lord and the Lord prayed over them, blessed them. And then as we're about to see in verse 17, a new guy comes running up. This is an adult guy. Starting at verse 17, let's read his story. It says, now as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and he knelt before him and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's, a, it's such a sweet story, and yet it has a sad ending uh, in so many ways. And even as the man went away sorrowful, we look at it and we're sorry for him. Because the man, as you see here, he starts so, so well. But as far as we know, he ends, unfortunately, so poorly. Let's take a look. Let's consider this man a little bit. Notice in verse 17 uh, that it begins by telling us that as Jesus is setting out now from blessing these little kids, that this man runs up to the Lord right there in the middle of the street. He falls down on the ground and he poses that question to the Lord. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know some things about this man. This story is found, this account is found in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so that's helpful for us because each one of those Gospel writers had a slightly different perspective. And as a witness, they noticed slightly different things. And so as we put together those three different accounts, we learn some other things about this man. First off, we learn here in Mark, going, by going down to verse 22, that this was a man who had great possessions. So this was a very wealthy individual. Matthew tells us, in his account, Matthew 19, tells us that he was a young man. And so it says, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I lack? So he's a man with great possessions, and he's a young man who has great possessions. And then Luke points out to us that this man was a ruler of the people. As you can see there, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. And the fact that he was a ruler over the people meant that he was at least 30 years of age. That's young to me now. For some of you, are like, wow, he was old. He was 30 or whatever. But anyway, he's around the age of Jesus. And he's wealthy. He's a leader of the people. Uh, this is a guy that has it, if you will, all together. This is the man that many people strive to be. I want to have wealth, I want to have position, I want to have youth, I want to have vigor, I want all these particular things. This guy has it, and yet we see he still feels empty. He still recognizes that he is empty. What do you mean he's empty? You've got cars, you've got money, you've got houses, you've got position, you've got people that work for you and answer to you. You've got everything that people could want in this life, and yet 
he is still empty. Matthew points this out. We don't have it in Mark's account, but it's important for us to notice it. Matthew says that when he comes to Jesus uh, and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep these things. And then here's Matthew 19. It says, now the young man said to them, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? You see, the man knows, despite having all of those things that I mentioned, is that he is still lacking something. There's something within him that knows that eternal life is missing. And thus he comes to the Lord to say, what do I need to do to inherit that eternal life? Everything about this account seems to indicate that this was a sincere individual coming to the Lord because there was something going on within him that was missing. And so he finds his way to the Lord. This is not a guy that's coming to the Lord fishing for a compliment. So it's not like he's coming to the Lord and, you know, saying these things and he's waiting for Jesus to say, you? No, you're good. Look, man, you're good. You're such a good guy. You're a quality people. Everybody wants to be like you. Look, the message I'm preaching is for these people over here. He's not looking for that. He really wants to know, what do I still lack? Why, despite having everything that I could want on this earth, And having done everything I could do to be a good guy in our society, why is it that I still feel like I'm lacking? And Jesus is going to address it. Now, many of the folks, as we saw with the Pharisees last week, they come to Jesus. And they come for the wrong reasons. Again, the Pharisees come to test Jesus. They come to catch Jesus in a trap so that they can discredit Jesus. But this guy is coming because he needs to know. And we see here, as it says, he comes running to Jesus. Now, you should know that the, the rich and the powerful, they didn't run in that society. It was considered demeaning for them to do so. You know the story of the, the prodigal son and his father? And it says that his father, when he you know, saw his son from a distance, you know, he, he hikes up that, it's not a dress, um, that outfit that he is wearing there, so his knees are free, and he runs out to meet his son. That was essentially a humiliating thing for him to do, but he didn't care. This man here runs to Jesus. That was essentially a a posture of humility, but he didn't care. He could have easily have taken one of his servants and said, hey, you, come here. Run over there to that guy over there. Tell him I want to talk to him, and I'll be down at my office. And he could have done that. But he doesn't do that. He himself goes and he runs. And then it says that he falls down in front of him. Now, you got to remember, he is a rich, young ruler out there in the open, in the street. For anybody that may want to see it, he doesn't even care. He falls down in front of a peasant from Nazareth. Isn't that something? Apparently not. You remember what they said about Nazareth? Hey, we found the Messiah. Yeah, where's he at? He's at Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was like this backwoods town of poor people. Messiah's not going to come from there. And yet that's exactly where the Messiah came from. And here's this rich young ruler, doesn't care what people think about him, what it looks like. He goes running and he kneels down before this fellow here. He kneels down before the Lord, a well-educated, wealthy, before-his-time ruler of the people, and yet he falls on his knees and petitions the Lord for the answer that his heart has been longing to find. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Such a sincere question. Now, I would draw your attention to it's a sincere question, but it's a flawed question. Because what this individual is doing, his question centers around what he must do to inherit eternal life. When we know that what the Bible teaches is that there's nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. The Bible teaches that salvation is not something we can earn, but that it is only something that we can receive. And yet this man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What this man thinks is that eternal life is something that a person earns and deserves. And so, if you think about it, he's not coming to Jesus so that Jesus could be a savior. He's coming to Jesus so that Jesus could teach him how to save himself. Because he says again, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The text doesn't say, but I imagine this guy was probably good looking and athletic as well. He's got everything going for him. The kind of guy we all hate, this guy. 
But he had just about everything people in the world hope for, and yet within him he knew something was lacking. King Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. I want to read it for you. He says, he made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put, and he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Campbell Morgan, a commentator I enjoy reading, he said that what this man is experiencing is the panting necessity of the human soul, that he knew what was missing, but he had no idea how to get there. And so he comes to Jesus, perhaps Jesus might know. And he addresses Jesus, as we see in our passage, as good teacher. Surprisingly, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, he doesn't say, why do you call me good? Because Jesus is like, no, nah, I ain't good. That's not the point here. But what Jesus is trying to do is get him to think about what he's actually saying. He says to him there, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, be careful, because Jesus is not saying, I'm not God. Please, don't, don't bring that here. What, what Jesus is suggesting is, nobody is good but God alone. You're recognizing that I am good. Are you really saying that I am God? That's where Jesus is going to go with that, with this guy. Because only God is good, so either I am good and God, or I am not God and thus not good. You got that? It's easier for me when I wrote it down. All right, But I was careful to read it, because that's a tongue twister. Jesus is saying to him, do you really know what you are saying when you call me good? And it's a question to the man in attempt to get the man to really think about what he is saying. And these initial words of the Lord in response to what, the, what this man asked of him, they're a challenge now to this young ruler. And it's a challenge to the young ruler about the concept of good. Jesus is going to answer the question of how he can inherit eternal life, he's going to get there, but he's got to work up to it. And so he is challenging this young ruler's concept of what good really is. Because for the young ruler, goodness is connected to performance. It's something you do. And I imagine a lot of us naturally think that as well. Oh, that's a good guy. That's a good person over there. She's a good lady or whatever. And that's connected to what they do. They help the poor, they go out and they work with children, and they clean up their street, whatever it may be. It's a performance-based thing. That's what this young ruler believes that eternity is based on. But for Jesus, goodness belongs to God alone. And he's going to challenge this man on this. And so now, knowing this man's understanding of goodness is tied to performance, notice what the Lord does next. 19, he says to him, you know the commandments. He's going to tie it to performance here. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud or lie, and honor your father and mother. And so for this man, his understanding of goodness is tied to performance. And so if this man's, in Jesus' mind here, if this man's understanding is tied, of earning eternal life is tied to performance, well, then Jesus is going to have the man assess his own performance. And he says these things, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal, and so on and so forth. Now you'll notice, those sound like familiar commands, correct? Uh, how many are there? Did you count them quickly? There's six of them that are there. I counted them for you. Um, now we know there are how many of the commandments? There's 10. There you go. She's ready. All right, so there's the 10 commandments. Jesus only put six up there. And one of the things you'll take notice as you look at these six, these six commandments all have to do with man's relationship with fellow man. Don't defraud your fellow man, your fellow woman. Don't lie to them. Don't kill them. Don't commit adultery against them or against your wife and so on and so forth. Each one of those commands are part of what we call the second table of the law. And so when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, God revealed to him the Ten Commandments. Moses came down with those two stones. You can read about it, Exodus 20 and the chapters following. We assume, because we're, uh, maybe it's me, we're logical thinkers. Half would have been on one stone, half on the other, five on one, six through ten on the other. But the reality is it was more likely that four were on one stone and six were on the other. 
the first tablet of the law, the second tablet of the law. Now, the second tablet of the law dealt with man's relationship with man. And again, don't steal from them, don't kill them, and so on. The first tablet of the law dealt with man's relationship with God. And so with Jesus, and so we don't uh, worship any other gods, we don't make carved images to other gods, we honor God by keeping the Sabbath, and so on, those ideas there. Again, go back, Exodus 20 reveals all of them to us there. And so what Jesus is doing initially is he is focusing on this man's relationship with his fellow individuals. And he poses this to him. He says, you know what the commandments say, do those particular things. Now the man, and by the way, you could summarize those as Jesus did in another place and where Jesus says, and the second commandment is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus essentially is saying to the guy, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the man is going to respond, I have. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So what Jesus is going to do now for this guy is he's going to reveal to him, these are the commandments of your relationship with other people. Jesus is essentially saying this, look, you want to get to heaven by doing? Then you need to do the entire law. And you need to keep every one of these commandments. Love your, neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't kill him. Don't steal from him. And so on. Now the man, he does respond. And he said, look, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, you got to read this story here as I think it's intended to be read. This man isn't being obnoxious. Uh, you, could, you could hear, I've done all those. But that's not what he's saying. All right, Look at his heart for why he came. I, you know, I've done all these things, and yet still something's missing. So he's not being obnoxious. He's not being self-righteous. Jesus doesn't say to him, oh, you've kept all of them? You know, he doesn't call him out or anything like that. In sincerity, this guy is coming to the Lord. But again, to go back to the Matthew passage there, Matthew 19, 20, he says, what do I still lack? I've done all those things, and yet... Without a moment's hesitation, he says, I've kept all these things from my youth. Because here we have a sincere guy who sincerely wants to know. Jesus now is going to turn his attention to the first table of the law. Remember, those are the commandments that deal with our relationship with God. And starting in verse 21, Jesus looked at him, he loved him, and he said to him, you lack still, you lack one thing, he says, Remember the man said, what do I still lack? Jesus says, this is the one thing you lack. Jesus is answering now that cry of his heart. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Immediately following the man's confession that he had done all these things uh, from his youth, Jesus says, the one thing that you still lack is that your possessions are your God. And so he says to him, go sell all your possessions. It's, it's interesting for me, at least, to note that first verse or first line of that verse there that says, in Jesus looking at him, the word that is used for looking is not uh, seeing with your eyeballs, but it's like seeing with your heart. And so in Jesus's heart, he, he was moved as to what was really going on inside of this guy. And Jesus, it says, he looked at him from the deepest places, and he loved this guy. He felt bad for this guy. He had compassion for this guy, and he loved him. Jesus, what he wanted the man to see was the futility of finding fulfillment or salvation through the things he was doing. But the man still wasn't getting it. And Jesus looked on him with compassion. And so now Jesus takes it to the next step, and he exposes this hidden evil in this man's heart, his, this man's sinfulness that he is not even aware of. And most people in society would say, what are you talking about sinful? He's a good guy. But yet in the deepest places of, this, of his heart, this resided. And so Jesus, again, he says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Now, it's important to note, Jesus never before in the Gospels told a would-be follower to sell all that they had and give it to the poor. Never after this did he tell them to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
the apostles don't talk about the necessity of salvation is to sell all you have and give it to the poor. This was a specific command to this particular man because this man's possessions were keeping him back in his walk with the Lord. This man's possessions were controlling and dominating him. And so Jesus says, if you want to discover what it is you're lacking, you need to sell all that you have and come following me, come follow me, because that's what's keeping you back. And we know that. Notice what it says in verse 22. Right after that command, it said, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great many possessions. Remember, what must they do to inherit eternal life? Oh, just one thing. You only have to do one thing. Sell everything you have and come follow me. Oh, I'm not so interested anymore in eternal life. You see, this one thing is a big thing, but it's this one thing that's keeping him back. Jesus' response to this man's question about what he still lacked, it's not really the answer to the question. It's the litmus test to provide the answer to the question. Because this man, in truth, had not kept all of the commandments because he had broken the very first of God's commandments, which we know says, you shall have no other gods before me. For this man, his money had become his God. And in this little test, Jesus is saying, look, you may have kept certain commandments, but the problem is you are controlled and you are dominated by your money. And so the solution is to get rid of it. So did this man really love his neighbor as himself? Well, Jesus says, prove it. I've loved, ever since I was a kid, I've loved my neighbor as myself. Prove it. Go sell everything you have and give it to those neighbors. I can't do that, the man says. And so he goes away sorrowful. Now, of course, we, we look at all scripture in the context of all scripture. And so we take this one passage and this becomes the only portion of the Bible we consider, then we could walk away from here saying the way to get to heaven is to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you can go to heaven. But as we look at the entire context of Scripture, what we see is Jesus is in no way saying that for this man or for any man to be saved, that all they have to do is sell all of their possessions and give it to, the charity, to charity. Because the Scripture is clear that the only way of salvation is through faith in the Lord. Remember Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It doesn't say through any works, even a big work, like giving all of your money to the poor. But we know in order for a person to be saved, they must acknowledge that they are a sinner, acknowledge and acknowledge that they fall short of God's standard. And this rich young rule, religious ruler, he's, there's an unwillingness to part with his possessions which show that he actually doesn't love his neighbor as he professed to be doing so. And so as it says in 22, he went away disheartened and sorrowful. What we would have liked to have seen is for this man to say, Lord, if that's what's required, then I don't measure up. I can't do that, Lord. That's too hard for me. I've never done that, and I don't see how I ever could do that. Lord, save me by your grace. It would change the entire initial question. Remember the initial question? What must I do? It would change it all. Lord, I need you. What can I do? It would change, what, what needs to be done? Change me. And yet it says he leaves disheartened. He who professed to love his neighbor as himself was not prepared, prepared to deny himself for the good of his neighbor. And in that unwillingness, He's revealing that he's unprepared to yield control of his life to the Lord. And so again, in verse 21, Jesus said, give all that you have to the poor and come follow me. And essentially in that unwillingness, he's saying, look, I can't come follow you. This man's wealth stood between him and his right relationship with God. For some of us, a lot of us in this room, that may be the exact same thing. It might be our wealth that is keeping us from that perfect relationship with the Lord. It's something that's hindering us from getting close to him. But it's not going to be just our wealth. It could be things like pride. It could be things like popularity. And we don't want to risk that popularity. And so, yes, I want to follow the Lord wherever he will go, whatever he will have me to do. 
But then if I make that particular decision, people are going to think this about me, and so we don't make that decision. So in that instance, popularity is keeping us from walking with the Lord. For some, it's fame and achievement. Look, I, I just want to get ahead and be the top dog and make my way to that particular place and do whatever it takes to get there. And so that we sacrifice our relationship with the Lord. For some of us, it's an illicit pleasure that becomes too important to us to give up, and thus we sacrifice the nearness of relationship with the Lord. Based on this man's response, Jesus had put his finger on the area in his life. It was his wealth. And whatever it might be in our lives, Jesus says to each one of us, you need to lay it down and you need to come follow me. And what I've come to discover in my own walk with the Lord, when I first came to know the Lord, when I was about 18, 17 years of age, it was one thing. And the Lord says, we need to deal with this. And then as I hit the age of the early 20s, it was another thing. And then it was another thing. And it was another thing. And as we continue to walk in our relationship with the Lord, in his kindness, he keeps putting his finger on an area. And he leaves us there, if you will, with the option. Look, I'm, I'm going ahead. If you want to come with me, I'd love to have you. But you got to leave this thing here. And then I'm wrestling. I have to wrestle with that. Do I want to continue to go further? That's what God's going to be doing in each one of our lives as, he, as we're in a relationship with him. And so in this instance here, it's his wealth. In your life, it may be something different. But I want to encourage you. Ask that of the Lord this week. Take some time this week in your quiet time to say, Lord, for this guy, it was wealth. What's it for me? And let the, let the Lord search out your heart. Let him show it to you. And then do business with the Lord, as Alan Redpath used to say. Because until we do that, like this man, there's going to be one thing we still lack. Something will be missing. Now, we don't know. It's possible someday in this man's future that he did repent. That he went home sorrowful and he was thinking about this wealth and whether he wanted to give it all up. And he finally said, you know what? I cannot continue to live this way where my heart is longing for something. i got to satiate it. And the only thing that will is the Lord. And maybe he did turn. I hope he did. But we have no indication of it. We have no record of it in the scriptures. What we do read is that the man left. There's a painting from the, the Renaissance era. Uh, uh, it's called The Rich Young Ruler. It's by a guy. I think his first name is George. His last name is Watts. Uh, and in there, he, he paints this picture of just, you, you get sort of, you, you get most of the back of this guy and just a little bit of the side of his face and you see that it is downcast and he's walking away from the Lord. And with the man having left, like that painting shows, Jesus looks around and, and I wonder, it doesn't say this, so don't go anywhere with it, but I wonder if there were a lot of rich people in the crowd that began to leave as well. And another thing I appreciate, the Lord doesn't say, no, no, wait, 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 everybody, everybody come back. It's okay. You can just give 10%. That's all I'm asking. You know, he, he doesn't negotiate with this guy regarding salvation. You want salvation? Here's the thing keeping you from it. And that's what the Lord presents out there. He lays it out there for this guy, and he looks around, and he sees him leaving, maybe some other people leaving as well, and he says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He turns to his disciples, and he says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that statement we see in the next verse amazes the disciples. Oh, my goodness. How can that be? I'll read it to you. It says, the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, part of the reason why it's amazing to the disciples is because the disciples were of the mindset that the mark of God's favor on a person's life was wealth and success. So if a person is wealthy, a person is successful, clearly they're doing something in life that God is pleased with, and so he is blessing them. At this time, it was believed that the man who walked with God would financially be blessed. It's no wonder then the disciples are amazed that they're not going to be able to inherit the kingdom of God. There's a lot of people that hold to that theology today, aren't they? That the mark of God's blessing is wealth in your life. 
You know what? I've come to discover that the devil can give you wealth in your life to lead you astray from God. And so wealth in and of itself isn't a mark of God's blessing. It may actually be a trap to lead you astray from the Lord. Can God work in the lives of people that have wealth? Absolutely. And we see examples of it in Scripture. But Jesus debunks the theory that wealth is a sign or blessing is a sign of God's favor. And he says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He adds, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Camels are really, really big. I was reading an article. One guy said, I think it was Michael Card, he was saying, I, I got up on top of this camel. We were in Israel, got up on top of this camel, and there was some delay, and I was sitting up on top of this camel. He said, I felt like I was sitting up on top of a house. Camels are really tall, really big. We, when we go to Israel, we go on a camel ride for those that are interested. And it's pretty fun. There's two of you on there. Uh, and camels got weird knees. They're opposite of yours. And so they sort of bend the opposite way. you got to see it um, to describe it. But essentially, they, they like... They get down like they're sitting on the ground or something, and then they just sort of do one of these things, and you're like, what is going on? You know, and, and I remember Danny, your mom, almost fell off the cliff, I recall, because she's up there like, woohoo, you know, one of these things or whatever, and we're, I don't know why they decided it'd be a good idea, let's all climb on the camels right on the edge of a cliff or whatever, and Danny's like, mom, you know, or whatever. So anyway, it's fun. Uh, but camels are huge. They're really, really tall. It's the biggest animal that Jesus might have uh, referred to that the disciples would have known. And we might say something like, it's easier for an elephant to go through uh, the eye of a needle. We know a big elephant. Oh my goodness, that's impossible. Now there is a teaching out there that refers to this idea. So Every city would typically have a wall around the city, and the city would have a big set of gates. Uh, think of it like a garage door, a big, large opening that would be there. And at night, they would shut the garage door. Now, inevitably, there's a possibility that somebody might get there after dark or whatever when the garage door is already shut. So with inside of the door, there was a smaller, typical door that you would have to enter into your home. And there's a teaching out there that that was referred to as the eye of the needle. And so here you are now, you're a person that's traveling and you got all your stuff piled onto your camel and you come into the city and you want to go inside of the walls for safety at night and the gate's already shut and it's a big hassle to try to open it. Uh, then the idea would be they'd open this small door, you got to unload your camel of everything, you got to push and squeeze and shove to get it through this smaller opening and then load all your stuff back onto the camel and then you ride inside of the town. Are you with me? I'm saying it kind of fast here. That is not what is going on here, all right? Just so you know that. But that's what some people will suggest. There's a pro if that's what is being suggested, then there's a problem with it. Because to make the connection where Jesus says it's easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, if he's talking about gates, you can get a camel through the eye of a needle. You just got to push and shove and, and kick and do whatever it takes, but you can do it. Jesus is saying here, he's speaking in hyperbole on purpose. And the word that he uses for needle, you know what it is? It's a needle. It's exactly what you think it is. And so that tiny little hole that's at the top of the needle that you need your kids with good eyes to thread for you because you can't see it, that's what Jesus is referring to. Can a camel, any kind of camel, pass through that little hole? No. Can any person earn their way to heaven? No. It's impossible. And that's what Jesus is trying to say, that it's impossible. And so make sure as you're reading this that you, you don't get away from what Jesus is trying to communicate, that it's impossible for a man to earn or a woman to earn their way to heaven. And when Jesus follows up with it, notice in verse 26, it says that they were exceedingly astonished. It's almost now they're saying, Jesus, where are you going with this? Who then can be saved? You know, you're narrowing it down so that nobody can be saved because it's a human impossibility for anybody to be saved. It's a human impossibility for anybody to save themselves outside of the work of God. And Jesus makes the point, it's especially difficult for the rich person. 
Because frankly, here in the United States, we are richer than the vast majority of people that live in the world and have lived in the history of the world with the things that we have and the things that we possess. So we are uh, all a people that need to deal with this, that it is especially difficult for the rich person. Because as I imagine you have come to discover, what riches tend to do is make you pretty satisfied with life here on the earth and take your eyes of life in heaven. In addition, if you have riches here on the earth and you have to accomplish something, you need something, you just throw down some money. You can solve your own problems. You don't need somebody to help else to help you. You just got to go down to the ATM and take a little cash out to deal with your problem. As sinners, we can't deal with our own problem. And thus, it's impossible for us to save ourselves. The disciples say that. Who then can be saved? Notice what Jesus says. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Who then can be saved? It's impossible, he says. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. You look at the testimony of Scripture. Zacchaeus, remember him? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You know the song? Zacchaeus was a rich man who came to know the Lord. And we will see him in heaven. Joseph of Arimathea had his own cave uh, hewn out of the stone where he could bury uh, his family. And he loans that to the Lord where the Lord's body is laid there. He was a wealthy man. Lydia in the New Testament in uh, the book of Acts. We read that she was a wealthy um, follower of Christ who used her resources as a a blessing and a benefit uh, to the apostles. So rich people can get saved. And so it's not saying that rich people can't get saved. Rich people who, despite their riches, cried out to the Lord and began to follow him. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Because God's grace is sufficient to save any man or woman. And, you know, sometimes when we think about preaching a message, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach the gospel. And many times we present it. Are you down and out? Do you have nothing going for you? Are you struggling with this or with that thing? And we present it that way. You know, we should present the gospel. Is everything going great for you? Well, you're still going to hell. All right? Because that's the reality. Sin keeps us from heaven. And we're all sinners. Whether on the outside our lives look fantastic and great and everybody would want our lives, the reality is we're all sinners and separated from God. And it's impossible for us to save ourselves. And thus Jesus came. Amen? Amen. And Jesus, when he was in the garden, he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. A few verses later, a chapter later, Jesus is on a cross giving his life for those that will be saved. And it answers his prayer. There is no other way but through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Can I just say one last thing? Thank you. Um, I think there's application here that goes beyond salvation, and it goes to the sanctifying process in our walks with the Lord. And by sanctifying process, what I mean is God's changing you more into the image of his son. So I got saved 30 years ago. That was my salvation experience. God's been sanctifying me, hopefully, right, dear? Huh. She says, gee whiz, God's been sanctifying me over the next 30 years or so to make me more like his son. Sometimes we approach that sanctification process and we look at certain areas of our lives and we say sanctification in that area is impossible, right? I'll never be able to love my wife the way I'm supposed to and so I might as well just settle in and be the jerk that I am. And God says, no, I want you to be sanctified in there. God, that's impossible. It is for you, but not for me. You know, we, we think about an area of sexual sin. We think about a, we're just proud and arrogant. Whatever it may be, there are areas in our lives that we look at and we say, well, that's just who I am. God can never change it. And I just want to speak to you this word. I think it's, it'll be helpful for you to, to take it with you and to trust in this promise. What is impossible for you is possible for God. And so some of us here, we talked last week, we're in that category, we have crummy marriages. And we realize, well, I can't get divorced or whatever because he read some passages to me or whatever it may be. I'll just settle into this crummy marriage. Let me tell you, God can transform your marriage. 
It's impossible for you. You've come to discover it in the five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30, 50 years that you've been married. But what's impossible for you is possible for God. Rely on that promise, claim that promise, and walk in that promise. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, I'm done. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful truth. Lord, I know so many of us in here, we want to be in right relationship with you. We want to be fellowshipping with you. We don't want anything to come between us and you. And yet there are these aspects of our nature which do lead us to the place where we conclude this will never change. It's impossible. And Lord, I just pray for this room here today. Lord, and everyone that is in it, I pray that you would just flood each of us with an understanding and a sense of hope in this moment. Of that which we could never do for ourselves, you can do. And Lord, we'll walk in that hope as we leave this place. And Father, we pray for those of us in this room that don't yet know Christ. And maybe this morning they have come here thinking the exact same thing that this young ruler was. I've tried everything else, and yet something is still lacking. What is needed? And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on this room and you would draw those individuals to the cross of Jesus Christ. That what is needed is the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, that they would lay apart, lay aside anything that might be hindering them and come to the cross of Christ and embrace him. And Lord, that you would enter into their lives, you'd forgive them of their sins, you'd wash them, you'd cleanse them, you'd birth within them the new life that is found in Jesus Christ. You'd fill them with your Holy Spirit. You'd confirm in their hearts that that which they had been searching for has been finally realized. And you'd give them the joy of salvation this morning. And so do a holy work within us. Even as we close our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.